This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern, and our podcast is available 24-7 wherever you get yours. Just search for Women at Work and Laura Zarrow, and you'll find us. And be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business, and me, you can find me on LinkedIn. When we last spoke with today's guest, she, like a lot of us, was trying to keep her small business afloat at the height of the pandemic, worried about her employees while dealing with her own anxiety about what the future would hold, never mind parenting several children in the midst of what was a lot of other professional activity. That was the May of 2020. And on today's show, she's going to tell us about what's happened since then, how she made it through that difficult time, and what we can all learn from how she learned to navigate being at home, remote work, all that technology, and big changes in her work life. Maura Ahrens-Mealy is the Executive Vice President of Social Impact at Gebbing Communications and host of the Anxious Achiever podcast for Harvard Business Review. Maura, welcome back to Women at Work. Hi, Laura. Um, I want to tell the gang a little bit more about you, and then we're going to get rolling with the conversation. Okay. When we first met Maura in 2017, she was promoting her amazing book, Hiding in the Bathroom, How to Get Out There When You'd Rather Stay at Home. And by the way, it helped me understand so many things about myself that I had never had language for before. So I encourage you all to pick it up. In between that and all the other things she does, she's a prolific freelance writer. She's written for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and The Guardian. Since 2004, she's covered the campaign trail, the White House, the lactation room, and the office cubicle in her role as a blogger on women, politics, and work. She's the founder of the award-winning social impact agency, Women Online, which Devin just required. And she's launched digital campaigns for President Obama, the United Nations, and the CDC. Maura does all of this with sheer talent, a tremendous education, a great deal of experience. She has degrees from the Harvard Kennedy School and Brown University and holds a certificate in government from the London School of Economics. And on top of all of that, she is deeply human and a joy to be with, which you're all going to get to hear now. So Maura, welcome back to the show. (laughs) Thanks. So seriously, Mara, when we last talked, it was I had just gone into the closet where I'm recording and we were all just had whiplash from everything that was going on around us. At that point, loans were coming out for small businesses and you were in the process of really trying to figure out how to keep everyone afloat and how to pivot. How did you get from there to having your firm acquired? Oh my gosh. First of all, I have to say that thinking back to that interview, I realized that I had what Brene Brown calls a vulnerability hangover after that interview, (laughs) because I I think it was the first time that I had talked about my PPP loan from the government and the fact that my business felt like it was in trouble. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) oh my God, I can't believe I said that on national media. Um, But it was true. (laughs) And it was great, Maura, that you trusted us. And what we heard from you is something we were all experiencing. Millions of people, millions of people. Um, Yes. And so the loan is, the loan is all set. It was very helpful. Thank you, government. Um, But yeah, so actually what's funny is 
2020 and then 21 turned out to be really good years for my business. We were scrappy and we pivoted and we had the good fortune, truly good fortune of being totally virtual and being basically in a totally virtual business. Um, You know, we weren't a restaurant. And so we did lose quite a bit of initial uh, business revenue from the in real life events that we used to staff for clients and put together. But you know, we found virtual events, we found Zoom, like everyone, and it ended up being a great year. Um, Such a good year that, yeah, we ended up getting acquired. um, That's so not what you were anticipating when we talked. Nope. When did you, in that arc, did you start to be able to breathe? Did you realize like, okay, there's work here and we've got this? I never breathe. So (laughs) it's not in my personality description. I I, I think that um, my, my dear business partner, Jen Vento um, was, was, was such a rock with the spreadsheets. Like it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Maura. look, here's the most amount of revenue we could possibly lose. And so, you know, the other thing about the pandemic at the height of that time, I think it's less so now, unfortunately, is we, we did all feel like this was not our fault. Like we were in this, there was very little we could do about it. And so I sort of relaxed into change. I think a lot of us relaxed mm-hmm. into change while also being white knuckling the change. <laughs> right. And um, and my team did such a good job at making up for lost ground that I would say by December, of, so almost a year ago, I was looking at our numbers and I was thinking, wow, we did this. Like this was actually a good year. And I, I just felt really proud. For good reason. So I have a couple of questions. When you had that realization, how did you share that with your team? Well, it was bonus season. Ah, okay. <laughs> um, so I, I yeah, we, I, I gave everyone really nice bonuses, which felt wonderful to do in the midst of the pandemic. I really felt like it was their work, not my work. Um, that shown and the other fun thing and and you know as we're heading into holiday gift season anyone who works in a business or any organization is thinking about oh my gosh how do I acknowledge my coworkers at the yeah. end of the year how do I acknowledge my clients the people in my life who make it all happen and um, we really had a lot of fun um, we we gave out bonuses we sent an end of the year email to everyone we've ever met, like sharing all the good news, but also talking about how hard it was in the pivot. And we made three donations to charities that we really cared about in the name of all of our clients. And then last but not oh, least- Oh, Mara, that's so lovely. It was so cool. But this is the coolest part. It's like, I really get into holiday gifts um, for my clients. We supported this great woman-owned business um, who designed neck gaiters, COVID-safe neck gaiters that had famous- figures in feminist history and we give everyone we know. So that was fun. (laughs) That, that sounds like a lot of fun. What a great gift to receive. Um, I'm glad that you had all that you got to celebrate with such multidimensionality that you were able to extend generosity forward in a year where so many people were just trying to hold on. Um, you said Maggie some... Stern Stitches. I want to give her a okay. shout out. Maggie, Maggie Stern, Stern Stitches. Stitches everybody. She's on Etsy and she's fabulous. Okay. I'm going to check it out afterwards. It'll be part of my insomnia shopping in the middle yeah. of the night tonight. Um, when you were talking a, a few minutes ago, you said something that was really struck me. You were, you realized that it wasn't your fault mm-hmm. and that even though you were still white knuckling it, it helped you get 
make friends with what was happening, accept it in a different way. To what degree do you think that issue of to what degree is it my fault when we're in positions of responsibility that get in the way of our being able to be effective in times of crisis? Oh God, how much time do you have? I mean, I, I think the fault and the guilt is a, it's a gendered issue, right? It's a lot of women are socialized to take on guilt and fault in a way that sometimes men are not. And I, and I think it's a characteristic of, of what I lovingly call the anxious achiever in which that we, you know, and, and I, I think I speak for myself, but also the hundreds of people at this point that I've interviewed that like, we always assume it's our fault. Um, And so in a way, I think you're hearing from people a lot that the pandemic almost, they were prepared for it. There's a lot of anxious people out there um, who have been preparing for the worst for a long time. And so when the pandemic came and you had to really sort of like hang on, act quick and Mm -hmm. assume that the worst was going to happen, they were like, I've been living this movie inside my brain for decades. So I actually have a playbook. And I don't say that to minimize the pandemic and what it did to all of us, because I'm not saying that. But I do think, and data shows that people who are anxious actually deal better sometimes in a real crisis. Oh, because they, because they have been developing the skills to deal with it and it's real. So it's not tapping into anxiety they wish they could leave. Yeah, they've been waiting for the other shoe to drop for a really long time. So when the other shoe drops, um, they're almost comfortable letting the adrenaline take over and and going to plan B. I had never considered that. That's really um, a powerful insight, Um, although it does suggest it's a reminder of how exhausting it must be to live with this anxiety all of the time. All the time. So, Maura, one of the things that you had helped me understand and see, and this was the first time we talked now a number of years ago, and you had your business and you were growing it, but you were also very proudly and happily working from your bed (laughs) and had constructed a way of working within your life that worked for you. Mm -hmm. How did that have to change when the rest of the world was also remote? (laughs) Well, I felt both like, ha, see, you can do this. (laughs) All these years you've been making everyone come into the office, like you can do this. Um, It's funny, I I joke with my friend Callie Yost, who who has been doing work life and workplace flexibility, you know, deep strategy work for 20 plus years um, that like, She's like, yeah, see, see, Mr. CEO, you, you kind of like this. You kind of like not having to sit in traffic for two hours a day, right? So so there is that element of like being prepared. But I think also um, it was interesting to see other people experience the kinds of uh, remote burnout that I had also been struggling with a little bit. And I also realized that I do like and need people. I found myself enjoying it at first and then getting desperately lonely and really wanting to be back out in the world. And I still feel that way. Like I'm, I actually feel weirdly ready to go back, um, out on the road to some extent. It makes me wonder how much what we each experienced was the side of ourselves that we don't normally get to see. I think that's, oh yes. Well, how about you? Um, for me, I had not acknowledged the degree to which I was an intro- introvert. Mm. 
I think I classically rank as an ambivert Mm -hmm. and I can get really electrified by being around people and then I'll be completely exhausted and I need to come inside and recover. And what I found was I expected to miss the world, but then I found it kind of comforting to be in my little nest. Part of it for me was I was also starting a new chapter of my life. Um, my long-term sweetheart and I moved in together. And so, you know, our pandemic project was pouring through boxes and hanging shelves and redesigning closets. And it was like we got a little honeymoon time where the world let us nest. So I had joy in the midst of what was a very terrible time for a lot of people. And then it was as it carried on, I started to long for in-person art. Um, I wanted to see live dance. I wanted to hear live music. I wanted to hear voices around me. And I started to really miss that magic and beauty. But at the same time, I really, I found it very stressful when I had to go back to work, like to be on the train, to be in traffic, to be around humans all day. Not to mention something I want to get to later, which is how much I didn't understand about how exhausting Zoom was. Well, Zoom is really exhausting. Zoom is exhausting. But I, but I love that you literally had your nesting time. I think that's such a sweet thing. It and was a really- little bit of a silver lining. It was, it was, we saw it as the real gift it was. By the way, for those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM, channel 132. And I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. My guest today is Mara Ahrens-Mealy. She's the Executive VP of Social Impact at Gebbin Communications. So Mara, I do want to talk more about everything you learned um, and have shared in an amazing TED Talk about how to be resilient with online work. But before we go there, I want to jump back to asking a few more questions about this transition that you went through with your own firm. Mm. So at this time that we were all sorting out this pandemic stuff, how do we keep ourselves together? How do we keep our families together? How do we keep our business together? You clearly were rocking it and then got acquired. I feel like that's like the mystery of falling in love or fundraising. How does it just happen? Does somebody come knock on your door and say, Maura, your firm's fantastic. Can we buy you? (laughs) like nothing, like everything in life, nothing just happens. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I have been setting the intention. It sounds super woo woo, but I really believe that for since 2017, if I'm honest, I uh, was very uh, lucky to be invited on a trip to Israel. It was a woman's fellowship. And we had this night where they dropped us off in the middle of the desert in the pitch black in a crater in Israel. And we were meant to really go deep. And um, as a working mom of three, you know, my, my chances to be alone and go deep are very limited. I'm sure you yeah. can appreciate. And so all of a sudden, I literally have hours in the dark to go deep. And this voice came to me and it was like, it's time, Maura. You're going to sell your business and open the door for a new chapter in your life. Because I had been doing this work for a really long time. And my writing was just taking off my podcast. So that was 2017. I didn't sell the business till 2021. Okay. Mm -hmm. It took a long time. I dated a little bit. I dated people. I would explore with firms. There were a few times when I would literally email a firm that I thought was good and in our spot and say, hey, want to (laughs) talk? I was very forward. And so I got close even a couple of times. 
it took a while to find the right fit and it took a minute to understand how to get our books together, how to get that presentation. You know, it's a lot of work actually. And so I don't want anybody to think that it was magic. And I don't want anyone to think that it just like, I'm so great. And I was just this beautiful, shiny <laughs> present. Like the intention was definitely out there and, and women's networks, um, Heather Whaling, who bought me, bought my firm and I are actually part of an entrepreneurial women's network, which is the coolest thing. Oh, that is really cool. So I want to back up for a minute because there's a few things in this story that I think are really important. So I don't think it was woo-woo at all to hear about this intentionality. Um, It kind of doesn't surprise me that until all the noise could go away, you couldn't hear your own voice. Is that a fair way of summarizing what happened? Uh, yes. And, and and honestly, I think that a lot of what we're seeing from this great resignation um, phenomenon is the sense that maybe people during the pandemic, even in the midst of the fear and the trauma and the chaos of your children screaming and your dog barking, <laughs> had more time to sit with themselves. Right. I think that was part of what made uh, it uncomfortable for a lot of people. It is uncomfortable. It's like we spend a lot of time blocking the noise out of our own heads because our own heads can be the problem. They usually are, you know, as well as other people. But yeah, for (laughs) sure. I mean, it's and, and part of the reason why we keep ourselves so busy, right, especially we professional, successful women, we keep ourselves busy because it's often more comfortable to feel busy than it is to sit with the big questions. Exactly. So as you sat with this question, you had this kind of epiphany um, and you noted it didn't, you went on, you you dated a few other firms, you were proactive when you reached out, but it wasn't magic without going into too much detail. I think there are a lot of people who don't understand what the process includes for how you sell your business and remain attached to it. Can you give us kind of like the big from, you know, the, the, 10,000 foot view, what were the steps in that process? Well, I think it depends if you have a service business, right? Where you are selling professional services and the value in your business is your client relationships, the skill set of your team, your book of business, right? Versus Mm -hmm. if you make a product. So I make, you know, really good lollipops and, you know, I hand over the recipe and I don't need to be there to make the lollipops anymore. So that's something that people should really think about is like, what am I actually selling? Right. Mm -hmm. In my case, it was services, it was relationships, it was my wonderful team's ability to execute. And so it's not a situation where you can just say, look, here's this company, see ya. Right. (laughs) Right? (laughs) We are the company, the people and the relationships are the company. And so we, we are doing, you know, an earnout situation, which is very common for sales businesses, for PR firms, accounting firms, ad agencies, mm-hmm. all kinds of service businesses where you basically get absorbed, <clears throat> excuse me, by a parent firm. There's a period of time in which you are contractually obligated to stay in. So the first question you have to ask if you're thinking about selling your small business is what's really for sale here? And who's right. going to find it valuable? Right. Is it a lollipop recipe? Is it a talented team? Is it a client list? Right. Right. Is it a piece of software? Right. <laughs> that's, that's the best one. <laughs> right. Um, so in that process, how did you um, 
tell your team and protect them so that they weren't frightened but could be on board? I mean, it was scary. It's still scary, you know, but I I think that it was um, a lot of really open and sometimes difficult conversations, you know, and um, and the fact that we are still working together, I think, made it easier. But this is not a change that anybody should take lightly, especially because, you know, when you grow a small business, it is, it is like a family and it's like a little bit like a baby. And so you really want to honor people's different attachments to it, including your own as the founder. So when did you, when was the closing date? May 8th. Okay. So all of this was happening through the pandemic. Mm-hmm. How did, or did it, to what effect did it, if at all, did the pandemic affect the way that you approach the acquisition? I think that one of the great things about the pandemic is that the my acquisition wouldn't have happened without the pandemic because our companies aren't in the same city. <laughs> you know, like my team will never go into an office because we're all over the place. We've always been virtual. And so a real barrier before the pandemic to me getting acquired was frankly, well, but you're not in our city. You can't come to our office. And then after the pandemic, people were like, oh, wait a minute, it doesn't matter where you are, right? You can work remotely. And then when you need to, you can come into the office. So I thought that was a really cool factor that really helped a business like ours. Um, But I think also the pandemic really gave a lot of people a chance to think about what was next for them if they had the privilege to do so, um, which I did. And I I think also which which Heather did, who, who bought me, you know, like, what do I want for my business? I love the way that you've brought into higher relief that this couldn't have happened pre-pandemic because nobody's nobody would have been open-minded enough to see that it could work because we hadn't lived yet with all virtual work. Mm-hmm. In the in the process of this happening, um, how did you get your partner who wound up, so the firm that wound up acquiring you, mm-hmm. were you on the same sheet of music there or did you have to show them that it was possible? Oh, no, we were very much on the same page. It was very, very intentional. And where in your dating sequence, where were they? The last one. <laughs> <laughs> How many had come before? Just a few, not that okay. many. Okay. And from the moment that you realized you wanted, like you, you started talking to them until you signed on the dotted line. How long was that process? A few months. That's not bad. No, it was quick. It was a very, um, it was two women, you know, who sort of were able to negotiate what we wanted because we had both started the businesses. And in that process, as you're living with your baseline anxiety, mm-hmm. then the marvelous ways the pandemic contributes to that. And then what had to be anxiety specific to this huge business decision, how did you manage that for yourself? (laughs) Because I'm getting itchy just thinking about it. The weird thing about anxiety is anxiety is like water. It will go anywhere. And so it's bizarre, but I'm not sure that I had significantly more anxiety about this than I would have over normal stuff in my day-to-day running a business life, which was, which is always stressful. So is that weird? There's always anxiety when you're an anxious person. And so when there's real issues at stake, it doesn't always make things harder. 
It's interesting. The second this is um, resonates with what you were saying earlier about preparing for the worst. That, yeah. um, it, and it's it, it, I think it's helpful to help those of us who whether regardless of the degree of anxiety that we carry, a way of understanding anxiety in other people too, mm-hmm. and that um, when that it doesn't mean that an anxious person isn't up to the challenge. In fact, they may actually be better equipped. Anxious people are so up to the challenge because they've looked around the corner. I mean, I, I, I think that one of our gifts, even though it can be personally stressful, is that we have rehearsed plans A, B, C, and D already. We've got the playbook ready to go. Like we look at the big picture and anticipate what's coming next, which is an awesome skill. It can just Oh my be God, I want stressful. you on my team for yeah. all things. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so as you went through that period of time, um, and you were also trying to tend to things at home, was there any particular moment at which you felt like the anxiety lessened for you? It was hard because as my business life became clearer, my children were really struggling with the pandemic. Mm -hmm. One of my kiddos had a really hard time with remote school, with the whole thing. And so I felt that um, the nice thing was that I I could have a minute to sort of be like, you know what, my business life is in good shape right now. I'm going to tend to the home fires, which was wonderful. Um, The bad news is, is that I was worried for him. And of course, mom worry is worse than any other kind of worry. It always is. We just went through a time when I think any of us who worry um, had lots to worry about. And those of us who managed to go through life kind of blithely still were worried about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Were you able to compartmentalize? How did you shift between there's your general state of anxiety, there's the pandemic, there's work, there's your kids? How did you sort that in your own head so that you could be there for everybody? I'm a terrible compartmentalizer. I wish I could compartmentalize better. I just interviewed for my own podcast, um, Huma Abedin, who uh, listeners, if you've watched the media these days, you will have seen her promoting her new book. She worked for Hillary Clinton for many, many years and most famously, unfortunately, most famously, um, was married to Anthony Weiner, who was caught in a huge um, scandal. And I said to her, after reading her book, oh my God, you were going through unimaginable shame because not only was the stuff with her husband, but there was the stuff with, you know, she was working in 2016 for Hillary Mm -hmm. Clinton. How did you show up every day? And she said, "I, I compartmentalized. I just turned it off when I got to work. And I thought, oh dear God, I'm so jealous, but here's my big aha moment. Working at home makes it really hard to compartmentalize. Yeah. And this was my big realization about the pandemic is that when you're running around town or you're, you know, dealing with people in the office or, you know, whether you're staffing a presidential candidate or you're just like the rest of us, again, you're busy. You Mm -hmm. can compartmentalize more easily when you're sitting at home with just the cat and you have that two hours before a stressful phone call with your boss, you've got a lot more empty space to fill. And that's really hard for a lot of us, myself included. And I think one of the hardest things about remote work for a lot of people 
is again, is that downshifting and just that more time, even if you're working at your desk, it still might be quiet. There's room for thoughts. Mm -hmm. And how do you sort of keep, keep those uncomfortable thoughts or anxious thoughts at bay? What did you do to deal with those, Maura? I don't deal with it well at all. It's something I work on every single day. <laughs> I mean, look, here's what I do. I, I mean, I have a whole bag of tricks, which I'm happy to tell you about. And some of them are more successful than others. But <laughs> but, but I truly do believe um, that if you have, if you're working at home and you're by yourself, right, mostly, and you have something that is on your mind and stressing you out, you have to build in a little bit of compartmentalization or breaks. And that could be leaving the house and going to the grocery store and getting mm-hmm. your mind off of it. It could be, you know, if you're, if it's safe, going to work with a friend, going to a coffee shop, like literally getting out of your head. I think that that I've really realized that even though I'm, I'm such an introvert, that if I'm in a kind of stew and I'm worried about something, I've got to change the scenery and exercise helps a lot too. Yeah. It, exercise for me was life-saving yeah. um, because I learned kind of quickly that going into the kitchen to eat every time it happened was probably not going to go in a good direction and nope. it didn't. Um, and so then I also had the experience of when I did go out of the house, none of my clothes fit, which didn't help my self-esteem <laughs> at all. <laughs> I had to um, shoot a video. Oh my gosh. Right in the middle of the pandemic, I had to shoot a video, you know, in, in my life as a public speaker. And I had, I had been in sweats and I stupidly didn't try on any clothes until the morning of nothing fit. I had to run out to Nordstrom's with curlers in my hair Oh my god! and I had 45 minutes to buy a bigger dress. And I did it. <laughs> okay. At least Nordstrom was there and you got the bigger dress. I, I love Nordstrom's. I had a day like that. And I was like, there's a reason like, and there've been times where I've loved Spanx and a lot of moments where I hate Spanx. Um, and it, and it wasn't just that they're uncomfortable, but it, it represented to me a way of being constrained that was now equated with going into the workplace. Yes. Yes. I wrote a piece about this on LinkedIn, which I swear was the only thing I've ever written that went viral. It went viral, which was I put on Spanx. I don't want to put on Spanx anymore. Do I have to put on Spanx? Can I be a successful quote out there kind of, you know, public figure out there in the workplace with where it was like this whole meditation on (laughs) do we have to wear Spanx? And what does it mean if we say no? Right. And shoes that hurt. Oh God. Um, 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 both of them I'm trying to reject as part of just being comfortable in my own skin, whether I'm inside the house or out of it. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's also a lot of it is a generational thing because I'm I'm 45 and I'm strongly in the generation still where like my boss is coming up, got office ready, you know, oh, 90 yeah. minutes on the hairdryer. And a lot of young women on my feed were like, this is ridiculous, patriarchal BS, let it go, which I respect. You know, I do respect, and I wish I could, but there are still certain settings that I'll be in, and I'm 55, so I've, you know, mm-hmm. slightly, you know, been doing this a little bit longer than you, but at every stage of my career, there have been settings that I've been in where that kind of compressed, repressed polish mm-hmm. um, feels necessary. Yep. And without having a lot of money to spend on fabulous clothes, it can be even harder to present that way in a work-appropriate way without feeling constrained. I don't think we've evolved past it. 
Do you? <sighs> Half. I think it's very industry specific, but, and I think it's very role specific, what mm-hmm. your role is in the company. I think it truly, it might be different if you are a software developer than if you are the head of marketing. That's a very but, important distinction. Yes. But I'm, I'm the head of marketing, you know what I mean? And it's <laughs> right. like, I, I, but, but there's another piece of it, which comes back to the whole anxious introvert thing, which is that one of the things I learned in all my research is that actually for some of us putting on a costume is not a bad thing because putting on the costume, whether or not it involves Spanx, and that is a personal decision, <laughs> right. you know, I love to put my red lipstick on. Like I, there are certain things about getting office ready that actually get me into a character that I like being that feels more professional. Mm-hmm. Then the Mora who is sitting here in Zoom in my PJ is not feeling that way. I don't know if that resonates with you at all. Um, it oh. resonates with me in some really big ways um, because I had both experiences where I've resented having to the time, you know, the the pink tax, the time and money that it takes to package myself up to present as professionally as possible, while also recognizing that. Like you said, a costume, it's not just that I'm playing a role. It conjures th- that part of me. Yes. It brings out my superpowers. I feel differently about me. It's not just how somebody's perceiving me. I feel like I walk taller. I have more confidence. Um, and there's an excitement to it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if part of it is when I get dressed up, I have this big silver cuff. So it's like quite literally my Wonder Woman bracelet. But there's a way that it helps me get ready to be bigger. And I think it helps my work. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not about role-playing. You're right. Role-playing is that makes it sound like you're being fake. And I don't mean that at all. I love the term conjuring. Like you are literally tapping into that power, which is an essential piece of yourself at work. Yes. And so now I have a few questions about tapping into power on the other side of that same coin. And you did an amazing Ted talk about this, Maura, where how, because I think, well, we made it through the pandemic, most of us, okay. Um, and eight, and we learned so much about how to work remotely. Mm-hmm. For many of us, we're going to continue to do so. Sometimes because that's now how our workplaces want things done. Others of us, because we want to, or... I work in an environment where we've been told, please be on campus three days a week, home two days a week, because it's part of decongesting and also responding to what workers have asked for. Mm -hmm. So as we look at doing this for the long haul, many of us, what can we do to help conjure those parts of ourselves that help us feel centered, productive, relaxed, ready to do good work at home? Right. And that's, that is the challenge because there is something about Zoom, which, and Zoom is great. I mean, thank goodness for Zoom. I'm not knocking Zoom, but when you are conjuring the self, it is more performative than if you are with other people because we are social creatures. And so when you get up with your big silver cuff in the middle of a room with people, their energy is reacting Mm-hmm. to you and then you react to them and it's great. And with Zoom, like we just don't get that. It's flat. So instead of connecting with you, I'm performing to you. And that is exhausting. Mara, I want to sit with that notion for a minute because like I wished 
I had heard you say this to me 18 months ago because it's intensely exhausting. And while you guys sit with this for a minute, I just want to remind those of you who just tuned in. This is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM channel 132. And I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. And I'm talking with Maura Ahrens-Mealy and she's the Executive Vice President of Social Impact at Gebbin Communications. So that notion that we're performing on Zoom, what is it about Zoom that's creating it? Is it, like you said, the absence of feeling people in the room and seeing their bodies? Is it that we see ourselves on camera? Yeah, I think it's a camera. You know, it's just that simple. You're 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 performing into a camera and 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 you're not with the other people. So you can't really read their body language. You can see their face sometimes, but that's it. And so it, it leaves a lot of room for doubt for social anxiety. And, and you also, if, if certainly if you're, if you're talking, like you have to be a little bigger on zoom, right. Mm-hmm. But you don't get that feedback from other people. It's like, you're just throwing all the energy into a void. <laughs> oh my um, God. That right? so describes it. The, at the beginning of the pandemic, one of the things I was really aware of was the importance of my supporting my team, helping Mm -hmm. them feel emotionally supported, tactically supported, connected to each other. They were amazing, but I came out of every day tired in a way I'd never been. Yeah. Well, you were, you were caretaking as well. And, um, you know, I think one of the things that, that I'm hearing from managers so much in the remote slash hybrid environment is just, I'm struggling with this new way of working. And then I'm taking in all of my team's struggles, <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm just literally taking it all in um, because I'm a person too. And, and it's hard. Of course it's hard. One of the other advantages that I had, aside from um, the benefit that, they, like I said, it was kind of our honeymoon time, was that I had been working remotely I don't know, 10 years ago, as soon Mm. as the technology was available, it was how I dealt with work as a single mom. Mm -hmm. I learned at the time that the most stressful days were snow days. And it feels like the pandemic just became 18 months of a snow day where you've got kids around and you're working and you're shoveling snow. And it's just, there was no break at all in it. You just want to sit and eat cocoa like on the TV and watch TV. And instead you have to perform and be a grown up on Zoom and the kids are screaming upstairs. Right. And you're just bouncing back and forth between all of it. Um, in the pandemic, because my daughter was a senior in high school and then went off to college. Aww. I had the, I know it was so heartbreakingly hard while she was awesome. Um, the, there was a quiet that settled into my life. Mm-hmm. that was both a big wide open space that I wished she was filling, but it also gave me the room um, to do some of the things that you had suggested. Like I learned that I could signal to myself that it was work time. I put on mm-hmm. certain lights. I played classical music. I made myself a cup of tea and then I was at my desk. Mm-hmm. But that was a big luxury that I had because I was no longer in all day mommy mode. You have three small kids. I don't small, various ranges, but are any of them college level yet? No, they're uh, almost 13, 11, and six. So yeah, How they were little. did you navigate that? <sighs> I mean, I wasn't the best. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't the nicest person to be around. 
it didn't bake any sourdough. Um, you sold, you got your business acquired though. You I get sure bonus did. points. Yes. Well, I mean, I, you know, like I'm a, I'm a serious working mom as many of us are like that's work and momming is, is kind of it. Right. And so, um, I'm very lucky though. I have a, I have a husband who really stepped up to the challenge and, um, and my kids got really independent. I, I really made my peace with guilt in a way that I had never been able to do. This is this is my pandemic silver lining, which is that as a consultant mom who is also a public speaker, I was on a plane before the pandemic at least once a week. And what I thought was super flexibility, like, yeah, I'm on a plane. Yeah, I'm always on the road. But when I'm home, I can volunteer because I don't have to go into an office Actually, my kids saw as mommy's always on a plane. Oh. And so for me, my pandemic silver lining was that I was grounded literally long enough to stop feeling guilty and stop feeling that like when my kids are home, I have to be super mom and just be a cranky, mean, go away <laughs> mom, like every other mom. <laughs> you could be real. I could be real. Not every minute had to be enrichment. There was a lot of television consumed and I got okay with that. Um, you had said <laughs> at the tail end of the half hour, the first half hour, you know, that there were certain struggles for the kids that it was important to help them through it. Yeah. How did you process, how did you carve out the headspace to be present for that? Because I hear you like, Parallel play, coexisting in the same house, leaving perfection at the door. It was, it, it's critical for survival. Um, but then there's a difference between that and when um, the stakes get higher again. And we need to, once again, conjure another part of ourselves in the middle of a time of crisis. How did you figure out how to do that? I had no choice. I mean, my son was in crisis and, and luckily I'm very comfortable with mental health issues. So <laughs> right. I had a head start in that sense, but, um, there were many days where I just had to say to my team, look, guys, I, I can't, I'm not present today. This, this has to come first. And, um, and it's really hard. I think that all of us who have been through a personal crisis while also having a stressful job or who work with people who are going through personal crisis when they have a stressful job know that sometimes things slip and that's okay. Um, you know, you have to make hard choices. Mara, you always perform at an extraordinarily high level. Um, Not always. Well, you're the, there's anxious, but you're also the achiever. Yes. How in shaping the culture of your team did you, A, help them understand what you were going through, and B, because I'm going to make the guess here, that you also, um, this wasn't just for you, that you there's space on your team for your team to experience something like this. I believe in treating people like grownups. It is a core value that we have sort of ground rules and boundaries together about what we do talk about and what we don't. And, you know, with my personal team, we have been working together for a long time, been through a lot. And 
we had the safe, safe and brave space to be able to say a lot of things to each other. And that's appropriate on our team. It's not appropriate on every team. And I totally respect that. But I think one of the awesome things that teams have learned during the pandemic is that Mm -hmm. we can talk, what does Glenn and Doyle say? We can talk about hard things. If we all agree that it's okay, we can talk about hard things. Uh, Yeah. Right. And like my team needed to know that I had to be, you know, at a doctor's appointment for three hours and therefore someone had to cover and, um, and, and, and they are amazing for it. I also, a core value that I've always had as a manager since I was my first, God, I became a manager at 22, which tells you a lot, um, is that I want people to be smarter than me and more capable than me who work for me. I want to be the least capable least smart person at the table. Um, that is the secret to hiring well. You nailed right? it. Right? Yes. And I, but I, I don't want anybody to need me. I want to be superfluous. But it sounds like part of what makes for a team culture where um it's not just that they're smart enough and empowered to do the work without you there, mm-hmm. but that there's something to the team culture of mutual respect. And the right balance of honesty that enables that to happen without people resenting your absence or wondering where you are and why. I hope so. You know, I really <laughs> hope so. I think also just after you've worked with people for a while, you you have a rhythm and you cover for each other. You, you know, life happens. And when you're a team that has chosen to be in a relationship, which sounds kind of creepy, but I but I when I look at teams that have worked together for a really long time, I always wonder. Why have these people chosen to be together for so long? I don't know if you ever wonder that. <laughs> it's That's like, actually, it's a really great question to ask, um, especially in the context of the acquisition where your team was a big part of the value that was yeah. being acquired. But also so for all of us that are on teams, we choose to stay there. And I can tell, like, I have lots of reasons why I love my team and choose to be there. Um, but I might have to ask the rest of them this question. <laughs> kind of a fun question. And it's funny because when I saw um, your wonderful producer, Patty, um, Patty's name pop up in my email and I was like, oh, Patty and Laura are still together. Like they've been, it's so great. You know, there's, there's this sense of continuity, but like when we work together for a long time, there is an element of us choosing to show up every day with each other, warts and all. So that kind of bond, like when I think about um, my work with Patty, you know, I've learned so much from her, with her, um, all the adventures we've had along the way and that we keep growing together is part of it. Um, With your team, um, it's clearly that there's um, that kind of connective tissue there, but you also became part of a bigger team. Mm -hmm. How did you protect the connective tissue and help it make its way into this new, now larger organization that you became part of? I mean, I think that is that is really the question when you merge two cultures, right? It's like, what do we want to keep and what do we want to discard? Like, how can we try to learn from each other? Teams are so specific. It's so <laughs> funny. It's true. I'm like families in many ways. Well, we are. We're family systems, right? Dysfunctional, but that's <laughs> that's who we're with and we react to each other. And so it's actually really interesting to have been a group of people who've worked together for a really long time to then join another group of people who've worked together for a really long time. And we don't know each other's 
habits. <laughs> we don't speak <laughs> right. each other's shorthand. It's it can be really challenging sometimes. So did part of learning that stuff involve um icebreakers and team activities and all that group stuff for you guys? Yes, but we had to do it all remote. An extra burden to something that I would imagine <laughs> is a little burdensome to begin with. It's it is, but it's also kind of a nice equalizer, you know. I mean, I think that when everybody is like on a little Zoom screen. And, and you hear this, right, from people who have sometimes felt shut down. Um, everyone is just a little thumbnail. So nobody can be so big as to be scary. No, or or take up too much space in the meeting or talk too much or like, you know, all the, all the things. So you guys managed to knit together as a group via Zoom. Via Zoom, via <laughs> Zoom. It's but just... you know, my team had always been remote. And so it was a real, again, a real value of our organization that like we don't, have an office. Right. And this wasn't, and that way of working was so um, natural that you could probably, I'm guessing, focus on what it meant to build the new relationships and not just the new mode of working that a lot of people were facing. Exactly. Exactly. And, and a lot of the issues of like showing up at my desk that is also in my bedroom, how do I be productive? (laughs) That was okay for us. We were, we were used to that. Right. That was old hat for you guys. So (laughs) we're going to run out of time shortly, but if people want to, Hey, learn more about what you're doing, where can they find you and your work? Well, they can, you know what? They can find me on LinkedIn. I love LinkedIn. I I just, it's, this is so cheesy, but it's my favorite social network. I'm always on LinkedIn. So you could look me up on LinkedIn, send me a message. I'll write you back. And, um, and there's links to all my stuff there. You can listen to my podcast on Harvard Business Review called The Anxious Achiever. I'd be very grateful for that. And I am working on a new book about anxiety and leadership, and it will be out hopefully next year. I can't wait to read it, Mara. It's so good to catch up with you, to learn from you. I'm so glad things are going so well. Thank you for joining us. Oh, same here, Laura. Thanks. And all of you, thanks for joining us as well. If you have a question about anything you heard, just email us on businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at our handle at SXM Business and find me on LinkedIn as well. Our podcast available 24-7 wherever you get yours. So just search for Women at Work and Laura Zarrow and you'll find us. As always, enormous thanks to my producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Chris Tukes, and Kara Pogue for all of her work behind the scenes. I'm Laura Zarrow and you've been listening to Women at work on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 